Just Ace Gadfly, a podcast about Dragon Age and philosophy, where I, Jill Fellows, get to sit down with my good friend and talk about philosophy for a few hours. We'll cut it down for you guys. So I'd like to introduce, or I'll let you introduce yourself. Kira Thompson's. So this week, we're going to look at oppression, privilege, resistance, and the Dragon Age games. So I think the plan is to focus largely on the elves and the mages and largely focus in Ferelden and the Free Marches, but we'll see where the discussion takes us and other examples may come into play. And we're going to try and do this across all three games if it doesn't get too long. So... (laughs) So the first thing that I want to ask you, Kira is about your first run-through of Dragon Age Origins. So what were you in your first run-through? My first run-through, I was a city elf. And I I had not done any research into the... I played it unspoiled, and I just thought, okay, city elf, that sounds fun. And it turned out not to be so fun. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the darker entry points to the game, I feel. It's quite dark. And the second time I played through as a Dalish elf. Less dark. It's it's a lot less dark. I mean, it's still kind of tragic, but it doesn't have, it doesn't introduce you to the relationships between elves and humans in such a dramatic fashion. So my first run may not apply to this podcast too much because my first run and my favorite run, I was a city dwarf, um, castless dwarf so that was kind of a different experience of oppression and we can talk about that at another time maybe but my second run through i was a human mage in a circle and i again i knew nothing really so i didn't really know what a phylactery was and a lot of the quest kind of depends on that and an understanding of blood magic and all that kind of stuff and i feel like i kind of got roped into stuff that maybe i would not have agreed to Although, I mean, you kind of have to, to progress the story, but yeah. So we've got elves and mages in the first run through of Origins. And in Origins, what happened to Kinlock Hold when you played through? So you can do the Rite of Annulment where um, you kill all the mages in Kinlock Hold to protect everyone. So I, at that moment, when I was asked about that, when I was given this choice, um, I, if I recall correctly, I actually did a quick Google. Oh, yeah. About what the right of annulment was. <laughs> because I really had no clue. And it didn't seem I didn't get any explanations in game of what that meant. So I was just curious, because I thought maybe I'd missed something in a dialogue or something like that. So I and once I, <laughs> once I read what the right of annulment was, I did not do that. <laughs> I kept saying I wasn't going to do it every time somebody asked me. And then somehow I accidentally triggered oh, no. the doing of it. Oh, no. And I think what happened was I was getting impatient with how long it was taking to go through the tower. And so I hit kind of the boss, Aldred, and he was like monologuing. And I was like, you were given the choice to be like, whatever, I'm going to fight you. And I was like, yeah, we're doing that. And it was like, da-ding, right of annulment. And I was like, oh, okay. Whoops. (laughs) You monster. I know. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk a little bit about game two. Here we don't have the choice of being an elf, but have you played as a mage? That was my first playthrough was as a mage. Um, I believe mine was too. Yeah, it was. Yeah, which it... It's quite different. My second playthrough was a rogue and it felt very different. Mm-hmm. In what way? Playing through as a mage, you really just felt so much more awful about being in Kirkwall, I think. Yeah. I felt very vulnerable about being in Kirkwall when like everyone you was ta- you would talk to would be talking about how horrible the mages were. And it felt really weird with a staff strapped to my back, which I understand for gameplay. Gameplay. But still, it's like, hello, apostate mage here. (laughs) Yeah. And I seem to remember, I think it's Cullen says at one point, because he's, what, second in command of the Templars. 
And he says at some point, like, mages aren't like you or me. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Don't look at my stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that was a slight problem I had with that particular game was that the different choices you made, even though they are quite different in terms of your relation to events in the game, like being a mage versus being a rogue or a fighter, like those are big differences in terms of how you would actually be treated. But it had no impact really on the gameplay in terms of your interactions with people. You still got to, you know, rub elbows with nobility. You ended up still getting a fancy house. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think that that was harder to accept as part of the way the game was just set up. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was thought through as well. Yeah, I think... A lot of what you see there is is more secondhand. It doesn't affect you. It might affect your sibling if you're a rogue, right? Yeah. Bethany gets taken to the circle and it might affect some of your friends, although Andrews and Meryl also seem to be able to just kind of run around with impunity. Yeah. And yeah, so it's a lot, it's a lot more secondhand that you might identify with the mages because you are one, but you're not immediately in any kind of danger. Exactly. Okay, so we've already talked about Anders a little bit and and your reaction to Anders in in our second uh, episode. But do you want to talk about Anders and the gallows right now as what happened in your first run through? So in the first run through, I was supporting the mages the whole time, pretty much, much to Fenris's (laughs) dismay. And uh, and I actually romanced Anders. Right. And then he blew up the Chantry. And you helped him do it unknowingly. Unknowingly, I helped him do it. And I just outright killed the guy because I was so angry. (laughs) Stabby, stabby, stabby. And it always felt to me that he made a huge mistake in terms of how it would affect the mages that I had been trying throughout the whole game to help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like whenever there was an opportunity to help mages escape, I was totally on that. But yet here he was making this big statement, which resulted in Meredith ba- basically invoking the right of annulment where yep. now I, now I was faced with a choice of, well, do I side with the Templars who I can understand why they would be upset at having the Chantry blown up <laughs> or do I side with the mages who I actually sympathize more with, but in doing so kind of you're almost tacitly saying that Andrews was justified. Yeah. Which raises questions about resistance. And, you know, when the, when the oppressed get to a point where they see no other choices, what are they, what are they going to do? Cause he, I think he legitimately did not see any other choices. I mean, he was also driven by, I think a lot of emotional reasons. Yeah. We have to talk about Anders and justice in another podcast episode. (laughs) There's some weird stuff going on there. Uh, So anyway, I I did end up supporting the mages in both my playthroughs. I've never supported the Templars in Dragon Age 2. It was always the mages because the circle in Kirkwall was so awful. Yeah. That was pretty clear. So... I can't remember what I did the first time, but I think I've tried everything. I have killed Anders. I have let Anders live and just sent him away. Like, I don't want to deal with you anymore. (laughs) I have let Anders live and required that he help. And, And perhaps, I don't know how I feel about this decision, but I was curious. I have let Anders live and required that he help on the side of the Templars. (laughs) Ooh! Which he will not do. Right. So... I'm very conflicted about Anders' decision because I agree with you that I feel like putting aside the identity and justice stuff, he felt that he was pushed to a position where there was nothing else he could see to do. But I don't love the way you and the rest of your party are made complicit in this. Yeah. And knowing Meredith as we do, the way it seems to give her a quote unquote justification for what she's arguably wanted to do for quite a while. Yeah. So let's let's talk about Dragon Age 3. There's a lot to talk about here. We'll just kind of do a quick overview. <laughs> so who did you play as the first time through in Dragon Age Inquisition? First time through, it was an elf who was a rogue. 
I really just like playing as elves, okay? (laughs) No, to be fair, I don't like playing as human. (laughs) When I have an option of not being human, I generally pick the non-human option. Fair. I mean, humans suck in this game. Humans in this game are really horrible. We're terrible. I've played it three times as an elf of different classes. So I was an elf archer, I was an elf rogue, and I was an elf mage. <laughs> I've played as a human mage. Right. And I've played as a canary mage. And I, the last three of my playthroughs have been as mages because they're just so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> they're fun to play. I rarely choose the human option. And I only did that once just to see what how it would be different in a playthrough mm-hmm. being a, being a human and to see what it would like be like not being disadvantaged at the winter ball right yeah i was going to talk about that cuz so i think that's a really really interesting mechanism it's a fascinating mechanism and every single time i had played up until that human playthrough you just start off behind <laughs> yeah and it's just like how far behind and as a completionist who also likes to do things perfectly, not getting the bell of the ball achievement right. is something that sticks in my craw. I didn't want to be a human noble. Yeah, because you have to be. You can't like, be a commoner. That is the last thing I want to be because that's not fun <laughs> or interesting. I thought that would just be really boring. So when I did choose to be a human, I definitely chose the mage because at least then you sort of, you, you've lost your status as a noble. You've been booted to a circle and you've lost your title. And I had a better sense of how mages were mm-hmm. so that it lent to a storytelling that I was willing to go into. So my first time through, I was again a dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> I like them. Also, I was trying to romance Varg, which failed. <laughs> you thought clearly this time. Maybe he's only attracted to dwarves, so I'll be a dwarf <laughs> and then it'll work. And it did not. That's, yeah, so sad face. <laughs> I have played a human mage and an elf mage. I didn't do a Kunari mage. I've done a Kunari, but not a Kunari mage. So I may not have a lot to say there. Or I guess not a, they're not technically Kunari. Talvashoth, I guess, is what you get to play, yeah. right? Yes. So I've done the Dalish elf mage and the human noble mage. And yeah, I found the difference when you go to the Winter Palace as a human noble, even though technically your nobility is gone because you were put in the circle. It's still very, very different. It's very, very different. It's very different than playing as an elf mage. Nobody called me rabbit, for example, when I was a human noble. (laughs) Um, Even though I wasn't a noble, everybody was like, oh, yeah, no, we're just going to treat you like you still are nobility, right? Yeah. And that you're a human. So that already. And and it was so much easier to get through the Winter Palace. It really was. As a human. So I guess one other thing on Inquisition, there's kind of a major choice near the beginning, whether or not you're going to ask the Templars for help in closing the rift (laughs) or the mages for help. What Uh. do you tend to do, Kira? Okay, so there's a difference between what I tend to do and what I did in my first playthrough. Okay. (laughs) Because, as I may have mentioned, I am a bit of a completionist. Right. And so I didn't realize that choosing one would cut off the other. Oh, no. And so the order that they were showing up on my screen in terms of Mm -hmm. quest order, the Templar one came first. So... (laughs) I ended up siding with the Templars in the first playthrough and regretted it almost immediately to the point where I don't remember most of that playthrough. (laughs) (laughs) And every subsequent playthrough since I have sided with the mages. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I sided with the mages the first time. I don't remember why. I think just because I still kind of hated the Templars from Dragon Age 2. Mm-hmm. I do find, though, I've sided with the Templars in subsequent playthroughs. And I find it kind of interesting because you get to know more about the Templars and about the dependency on Lyrium, which I did not really know playing through the first two games. So it doesn't necessarily make me think that siding with the Templars is the better choice, but it does kind of give me 
a little bit more knowledge and background into like what's going on in terms of their structure and vulnerabilities of people in the order and that kind of thing. Okay, let's move to our second segment, The Gadfly and the Dragon, where we introduce some philosophical theories and thoughts and ideas that we're going to reach for as we talk about these different aspects of oppression in the game. So Kira, what do you want to introduce? I would like to talk about the concept of oppression itself Mm -hmm. and how we think about how oppression and injustice relate to each other. And I think these are useful concepts because the notion of justice can be used in a very individual way so that individuals can experience injustices in lots of different ways. But you're not going to experience oppression in the same way as individual injustices. So the background that I usually draw on when I talk about oppression, I I take the concept that uh, Marilyn Fry developed, mm-hmm. where she talks about oppression as to to press or limit people. And her analogy in terms of how to perceive oppression is a birdcage, where if you look at the individual bars on a birdcage in isolation, you will never understand why the bird can't escape. Mm-hmm. Because you will just see one bar and you'll be like, well, that bar is not keeping a bird in, in imprisoned. Why can't the bird just fly away? Go around the bar. Yeah. But if you look at a bird cage, which is intersecting bars, multiple bars, then you're able to see why the bird is actually trapped. So by analogy, oppression exists where you have intersecting forms of limitation that prevent people from doing things or experiencing the world in certain ways. And what Fry sort of identifies as the core element here is that individuals don't experience oppression as individuals. They experience oppression because they are members of groups, social groups of some kind. So that you experience oppression because you are X, whether X is because you're a woman, because you are black, because you are gay, because you are trans, because you are disabled. So the idea is that your membership in a certain group means that you face these intersecting forms of limitation. And the problem with identifying oppression particularly in contemporary contexts with paradigms of oppression, you know, like the Holocaust or slavery, everything was very obvious to us now how those were oppressive. But now oppression can be quite subtle. And so the the way in which she thinks that we need to be thinking about oppression, what she calls this macro view, which is looking at the, the entire system of limitation. So as a lesbian... I experience limitation in terms of the way in which the laws and the history of laws in Canada had disadvantaged gays and lesbians. I experience it in terms of the social presentation of gays and lesbians in the media or the lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Right. So in terms of existing homophobia, there are lots of ways in which I encounter it. So when I go to human resources And they presume when I say that I'm married, that I have a husband, Mm -hmm. right? So that it's not just one instance, that it's all of these instances. It's almost like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? where each paper cut could be something different. So then when you have people who, for example, don't have or experience oppression in the same way or may not experience much oppression at all, depending on their social location, and you talk to them about one instance, they're only seeing metaphorically, the one bar of the cage. Exactly. And they say, okay, like, yeah, that sucks, but just go around the bar. What's so bad about Exactly. That? <laughs> it's only one bar. We can talk about the individual injustices that someone experiences, but what makes injustices oppressive is when it is this intersection of different kinds of injustices that occurs because someone is a member of a particular group. Right, the compounding of the multiple bars. Exactly. Nice. 
Okay, so we'll keep that in our back pocket. <laughs> kind of building off of that, I also want to introduce something from epistemology. So this is the study of knowledge in philosophy. And feminist epistemology has developed this idea of epistemic advantage. So this comes to us from standpoint theory, which traces back to a few different philosophers. Uh, Donna Haraway, obviously Sandra Harding is kind of the big name when it comes to standpoint theory. And uh, Hartsock is another name. And when we're talking about epistemic advantage, one thing that standpoint theory puts forward is the idea that what you know depends on your location in society. That is what groups you are a member of and how other people perceive and or stereotype you can both enhance and limit what you can know. So in some ways we can see this as fairly cut and dry. So if we go back to the turn of the 20th century, for example, uh, women didn't have access to universities. They were not allowed to enroll in certain university courses or programs or be on campus at different universities at all in the late 19th, early 20th century. And that would have an effect on what women could know, for example. But the flip side of this idea of social location is that people who are in marginalized and oppressed positions are more likely to, to borrow Marilyn Fry's analogy, see the bars of the cage than people who are not there. So epistemic advantage is the idea that people who are in marginalized or oppressed conditions have an advantage when it comes to knowledge of our social reality, knowledge of our social landscape, knowledge of power. It's not an automatic advantage. People have to do work in order to kind of see these things because we know we can internalize oppression and we can talk about that. But in general, it's comparatively easier, for example, to see sexism if you are a, somebody who experiences sexism, to see uh, homophobia if you are somebody who experiences homophobia. And if you are somebody who doesn't have these kind of experiences, it can be epistemically harder to gain knowledge about it. So that's an idea that I want to put out there, this idea of epistemic advantage, that being in a marginalized position makes it more likely that you will see the kind of oppressions and power dynamics that are at play than you would if you weren't experiencing this kind of marginalization. I think what's cool about this concept is how it kind of flips the idea of privilege. Yeah. Where you, you can be, if you experience privilege as a member of a social group that is not marginalized, then you actually end up being less privileged. When it comes to knowledge. Potentially in your experience of knowledge of the world. Yeah. Which I think is neat. You are ne less knowledgeable because of your privilege, because it's something you never have to think about, right? Yeah. Yeah. So another idea that kind of builds off of standpoint theory is this idea that comes from Miranda Fricker and then was developed by Jose Medina. And it's the idea of virtue epistemology. And I'm not going to go into virtue epistemology in a ton of detail here, but what Fricker and then Medina argue is that you can be a morally and politically and epistemically better or worse knower when it comes to gathering knowledge and sharing knowledge. So you can be somebody who goes about this kind of consciously and carefully with uh, the virtues of open-mindedness and honesty and humility about your own knowledge, or you can be somebody who's kind of arrogant, lazy, and close-minded. <laughs> and Medina argues that if you happen to be somebody who is more privileged, for whom the world works fairly easily for you. You don't run into a lot of obstacles. You don't run into kind of these bars, as Marilyn Fry says, in your cage. Then you're likely to be somebody who ends up being a little bit more arrogant, lazy, and closed-minded because all of the claims you make about how the world works is how the world works for you. And so you don't really see why other people are complaining. Right. <laughs> because everything's working fine from your perspective. So for example, I would like to think I'm not lazy, arrogant, and closed-minded, but I, as a heterosexual woman in a heterosexual relationship, when I go to human resources and they ask who my husband is, that's not a problem for me. That doesn't cause any kind of feeling of oppression. And if I am lazy, arrogant, and closed-minded, I may not think about the experiences of other people or come to gain knowledge of, hey, you know, like this form or this approach 
really isn't very inclusive. Yeah. Right. So Medina said in order to kind of change people's attitudes, how, how do you deal with the, the vicious knower as opposed to the virtuous knower? And he thought that it wasn't something that individuals could do. So this relates back to if oppression is something that is experienced based on groups, when we're talking about resistance or changing dominant structures, changing dominant knowledge claims, Medina argues that this is something that has to happen again at the level of groups. So it was the idea that um, a lot of people working over time through protests, through um, making materials for people to read, creating documentaries, all this kind of thing can slowly shift the needle. It's a group effort, not a single action. And one way he actually thought that the group could do this was by telling both fictional and factual stories from oppressed social locations, just honestly representing marginalized people's experiences, whether you're doing that in fiction by having a character represent a marginalized perspective or whether you're telling factual memoirs or narratives. He thought these kind of narratives, if enough of them kind of got out into the public domain and into public consciousness, could really shift people's perspectives away from kind of the more lazy dominant narratives that we might otherwise be experiencing, which I think is really kind of cool. And it's really cool in the context here. Yeah. Because that's precisely what you're given the opportunity to do. Exactly. So I really wanted to bring that up because the game that we're talking about, or the three games, is fictional narratives. So how might these fictional narratives serve to shift the needle and to encourage people to develop virtuous ways of knowing, for example? Shall we take these theories and apply them to the game and think about the game as frame and how the game represents oppression, resistance, marginalization, specifically with the mages and the elves? So do you want to talk about the mages a little bit, Kira? Sure. I always felt like the mages were just poorly treated by everybody. It really felt that that was, was the case. But then... I started, you know, looking at how they were being presented and it always felt like they were being presented as inherently dangerous mm-hmm. and that the circles were out of a necessity. And like that, that really is the justification behind it. And I think that always kind of rankled me because we're, we're given lots of examples of mages that have given into temptation for sure so we have aldred in the first game right leading yeah the kinlock hold rebellion through blood magic yeah and then we have uh orsino in the second game in the second game who is also a blood mage surprise spoiler alert (laughs) (laughs) that there's always these moments where we're being provided these glimpses of oh see here's why the circle is needed. And we get this, I think, with a character I love to hate, uh, Vivian. Mm-hmm. I, I really detest her. I actually really like Vivian, but continue. I think she bothers me because she embodies somebody who had it so easy within her particular circle, but just did not seem to realize how horrible it was for so many others. And I think this is where the concept of, of privilege actually is useful again, where you can have sort of multiple forms of privilege or marginalization. And I think because she experiences the world in such a privileged way, she, I don't think she sees the harms that other mages we're being subjected to. Yeah. And she justifies it on the justification that it's something that is needed because mages are so inherently dangerous. And I think one of the interesting things about that is how historically this has always been used as a justification for oppression, where the the targeted group is seen as dangerous in some way. Yeah. Right. So whether it's a physical danger, whether it's, you know, a a targeted group being just inherently more violent, Mm -hmm. whether it's a moral danger, Mm -hmm. 
that you know you're you're being seduced away <laughs> i'm thinking of you know the church attitudes towards um homosexuality for example it's it's a it's a moral threat yeah oh yeah uh and i can't help but think that that's how the circles are justified within the game yeah but as someone who's played as a mage it's you're, you're never really presented with the, the feeling of self as being a danger yeah there is kind of this moralizing temptation thing that's talked about with regards to the mages that the mages are going to give in to temptation and become abominations right that the spirits yeah. whisper to the mages or not the spirits sorry the demons, the demons. Because maybe there's a difference between spirits and demons we won't get into that <laughs> but that the demons tempt everybody but they tempt mages worse right mages are more likely to give in to this dangerous temptation as though mages were inherently more sinful if we wanted to think about it in kind of religious terms. And so they need to be protected from themselves and we need to protect other people from them. Yeah. And yet, yeah, when I play as a mage, it's not as though the game mechanic has a way of constantly tempting me yeah. to blood magic. Do you know what I mean? You're given some opportunities, it feels yeah, like. Yeah, I have the option to be a blood mage in Dragon Age 2, which I have done, but it doesn't feel like I'm going to become an abomination no. as a result. Like I don't have to watch any kind of meter and make sure I don't do too much blood magic or something. And there are times when I'm thinking in Dragon Age Inquisition, when you're up against the demon um, Ishmael, is it? Where you're given the opportunity to you know, ask him to give you virgins and money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't seem like that's going to have any real impact yeah i mean to be honest i never choose the temptation option so i don't know what that does for the gameplay i think i did once but i was a dwarf so maybe i was more immune to the temptation in virtue of being a dwarf because dwarves are supposed to be very immune to being tempted right that's part of their constitution well because they can't do magic yeah right. they can't they can except for sandal <laughs> well except for sandal who is and he is unique yeah. in a lot of ways. And we won't talk about Sandal. But I think when it comes to when it comes to for that sort of example, it's anyone gets that temptation. Yeah. It's not unique to mages. Yeah. And I think the characterization of mages as well, now you have an inherent quality magic, which now threatens other people and as a result of your own weakness. Mm -hmm. And the parallels that, you know, are there sort of in terms of, you know, gender oppression, where yeah. by virtue of being a woman, a woman, right, that and it's women's frailty that require they need to be protected and or Satan will get us or Satan. will get. Yeah, there, I think there's just so many parallels. And part of me really rails against that idea that just because you're a mage, you're going to be inherently more dangerous than, say, a rogue who can turn invisible and backstab somebody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the rogues and the warriors do do things that seem kind of magical. Magical. I mean, that's part of, again, the gameplay. It is part of the gameplay. That's true. And and Varric's kind of enchanted weapon can do a lot of yeah. damage. Yeah. So it's it seems always disingenuous that mages get tapped as inherently dangerous mm -hmm. when other classes seem to be just as inherently dangerous that instead it's about the choices that you make and anyone can be inherently dangerous but it's used as and I think I, I think it I mean it's part of the storytelling right that it's it's used in the society as a justification yeah for keeping them essentially prisoners yeah and so it's interesting that when you play as a mage if we think about that as a social location, the epistemic advantage that you get is you don't really see any inherent temptation. No. <laughs> not, not really. So if the danger really is that we're going to become abominations, that hasn't been built into the gameplay, which sort of belies the danger. Exactly. And we could read it as saying, this is just a false justification on the part of kind of arrogant and, and more close-minded people. <laughs> I mean, part of that is the game. Yeah. You are the hero, right? So 
but you don't have to be a virtuous person in the game. No, you don't. And there is a point in, in trespasser and inquisition where you do kind of have to pay attention to at that point, it's the mark on your hand, right? You have to pay attention to how high the charge gets because yep. otherwise you might like blow everything. Yep. Up. <laughs> so we could have a game mechanic that's like, you really have to pay attention to how much you're doing blood magic because that would have been really cool. But we don't, we don't. And it might not be a conscious choice, but I like to think it's a conscious choice drawing our attention if we play as mages to the fact that we're really not more dangerous than the rest of our team. And I think that's highlighted. So I'm going to go outside of, Ferelden and and the free marshes. I mean, yeah, yeah, do it. Into winter, you have a society where magic is not seen as an evil. Yeah, it's celebrated. In fact, perhaps too much. I mean, I'm not going to say that Tevinter is a, a good society by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not a bad society because of the magic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem that that's the source of the wrongness. The wrongness is in the choices that they've made and the way they use magic. They're not all running around like abominations. They're not. They're making poor choices (laughs) without being abominations. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And so I think I think there's lots of points where and where we can see that it's not it's not the inherent quality of the mages that makes them dangerous. And in fact. I'm tempted to argue that when you do have these mages who are going off and being tempted, significantly my character, in terms of the headcanon I have for myself, is often, well, what did you expect? Mm-hmm. Right? You've locked these people up since they were children, denied them freedoms, made them miserable, and now they're succumbing to temptation. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, and if we think right. about... The, the Marilyn Fry analogy. I mean, the mages in Kirkwall are literally put in the gallows. They are literally in a cage. Yeah. So. And they're, they're made tranquil for tiny little infractions, yeah. right? Where they are stripped of their power. And it's it just seems so odd that it's, it's so easily accepted. Mm-hmm. And I think this, again, goes to that epistemic privilege where, of course, the mages are going to be able to see it as something that is a problem (laughs) because they're in it. Of course, Anders is upset and enraged. Yeah. And Bethany, oh, Bethany breaks my heart. That phrase, other people always had to sacrifice to keep so that I could be free, I think she says. That even mages living outside of the circle. I mean, in Kirkwall and Ferelden, obviously things are different um, among the Dalish or into Winter, but mm-hmm. the apostate mages in Kirkwall and Ferelden are not free the way other people are free. No. Right? Bethany definitely is wary and afraid a lot of the time. And you see that, like, if you bring Bethany into the gallows, she's like, what are you doing? You Don't bring me here. <laughs> That's a Templar. Why are we talking to them? Yeah. Like she is afraid of authority, constantly looking over her shoulder. And I think we can see this paralleled in the experiences of a lot of oppressed people in our own society, right? The idea that the structures of power and authority in place cause more distress. They're not places people can turn to for feelings of safety and security. No, no. It's the the way that the laws are structured protects those in the privileged positions. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, you know, part of why I get so upset with Vivian (laughs) because because she's in a position where she's in a relationship with a noble. Yeah. She's protected because of her position. Mm -hmm. And she's risen high in the circle. She's risen high in the circle. She was, I think, lucky enough to be in a circle, which wasn't absolutely horrendous. At least there's no indication that it was. It seems that the circles in Orlais are not as restrictive as the circles in yeah. Ferelden and especially the Kirkwall circle. Yeah. But what that does, though, is effectively make her unable to see how the circles could be so deeply problematic. Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't have the epistemic advantage no. that perhaps Anders has, for example, having existed in in a circle in Ferelden and then moving to Kirkwall. And while he's not in the circle in Kirkwall, he still sees what's happening. And I think this sheds light on his actions in blowing up the Chantry. If you're not part of the circle, 
And if you're just looking at it from the outside, from that privileged position of assuming everyone has it the way that you do and your life is fine. And of course, everyone else's life will be fine as well. And if it's not, it's the result of their individual choices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then, yeah, you're going to be like, oh, my God, he just blew up the chantry and he's killed all these innocent people and he's breaking the law. He's taking the law into his own hands. And it seems wrong of him to do so. Mm-hmm. But if you shift that focus now from the position of someone from within the circle who has that epistemic privilege and is able to see the reality of mages, then his actions don't seem quite as unreasonable. They don't seem to come out of left field anymore. Exactly. Whether you agree with them or not, there's a logic to what he's doing. That is hard to see if you don't take a perspective of a circle mage in a bad circle. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. No, I agree with that. Should we talk about the elves? Oh, please, let's. Okay. <laughs> so the the city elves are secluded to an area. They're not imprisoned, at least not in Kirkwall. They are able to move through the city. But I found it so striking that when you agree to accompany Mer- Meryl to the city and you bring her to the city and you are instructed through your city map to take her to an area of the city called the alienage and you just kind of drop her off there and Meryl says like it's so bleak and and you can say oh you'll get used to it or you can say yeah it really sucks like but you as hawk you don't really do anything to address this you're just like this is where you live you accept it in the alienage which is in the the poorer part of the city And this is not going to change for the next 10 years of this game. I don't invite her to come live with me. I think, well, yeah, if you're in a relationship with her, can you invite her to come live with you? I don't remember that. Well, no, even if you're not in a relationship, you would think being a good friend. You could. You're in a mansion. Come hang out on my sofa. (laughs) Come stay in one of the many guest rooms I assume I have in this mansion. The many guest rooms I have. But yeah, no, you don't. (laughs) No, and... I get the impression after the first time you drop her off and she's quite kind of, this is an awful place. She just kind of accepts it after a while. Mm -hmm. I don't know. She seems, again, this I think speaks to her kind of presentation as naive, but she just kind of is fascinated by it in some way. Yeah. And so Meryl presents a bit of an outsider, right? She doesn't, isn't raised in the alienage and she could go back to the clan, although to do so, she would have to compromise what she sees as her mission or her principles. But yeah, she, so she is startled by the situation that city elves live in and how it's so different from her own upbringing, but then she just kind of accepts it. Yeah. Just the alienages in general. They're almost self-explanatory yeah i mean the word alien <laughs> i mean it's 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 uh apartheid writ small yeah really um it's the it's the ghetto mm-hmm. it's the keeping people separate um who are lesser than who are perceived as lesser than and it is the f- it's the physical manifestation of the limitations that oppression brings with it, right? So it's geographical in its presentation where this is where they belong. And even within the alienage, they are mistreated. Yes. So that it's not even a place of safety. And this, I think, is most starkly seen in Origins. In the the Origins story in Origins for for the city elf, which I, I really wasn't, ready for when I that was my first playthrough and it just it started and it kept going and I kept thinking oh oh dear like maybe this <laughs> isn't the game I want to play to relax and chill out maybe I should have picked a different character <laughs> but I also kind of I, I get committed and so I just felt like I had to I had to see it through and I felt like my choices were the right choices and it felt like I was you know standing I felt like I was standing up 
Mm-hmm. Right. It felt like a point of resistance, like the, the, the context in which you're now operating and the context in which the whole decision matrix plays out is awful. But it felt as if at least I was engaged in resistance. So it, there was a level of empowerment. There was. But then what happens when you are then forced to flee this home and forcibly recruited into the warden? Yeah. <laughs> So Duncan steps in and conscripts the city elf into the Grey Wardens. Yeah, and it's to protect you. Right. Because you've killed a human. Okay, so the the whole idea is that in order to be protected from the humans, you get recruited into the Grey Wardens by Duncan. Right, and then you escape the law, the legal penalties for what you've done by kind of falling back on another institutional power. Right. Which also is not necessarily a great place to be. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I feel like you get to escape your legal penalties because they kind of figure you're going to die as a warden. Anyway. So becoming a great warden is like a penalty. Yes. Yeah. Which I think really reflects why Duncan has so much trouble recruiting people. Other than Alistair, the wardens are not really viewed as a prestigious thing. Like Alistair seems to view it as quite prestigious, but every other storyline you are recruited, you don't volunteer to be a warden. You are recruited because of other things that have happened that have placed you on the wrong side of the law. I mean, when you're a Dalish elf, you don't get recruited. You get saved from darkspawn taint. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's what, what motivates joining the Grey Wardens is ultimately you've been tainted by the dark spawn and it's yeah. the only way to be healed. So no matter what, as an elf, your backstory and origins is, you know, being, being saved by the Grey Wardens. But for the city elf, unlike the Dalish elf, it's being saved from institutional powers. Yeah. Which raises another concept that Marilyn Fry sort of identifies, which is the the double bind of oppression. Yeah. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, right? That there is no good option, that people who experience oppression often have no good options. So you stand up and resist, and you end up a grave warden. Yeah, right? (laughs) Or you don't resist, and that's also terrible. And that's also terrible. So I think that I think that there are lots of choice points within the series that are kind of like that, where there there are no good options. Yeah, I think that's true. Should we talk about, to go back to the mages, should we talk about the mages and in Inquisition? Because the circles have fallen at that point. Yes. I think one of the interesting things about how things play out in Inquisition is you can see how even within groups that are oppressed, you don't find unified beliefs or ideas about how things should be. Yeah, right. We have Vivian who wants to see the circles back in place. We have Fiona uh, leading the rebel mages who makes a deal with Tevinter out of desperation and possibly misguidedness because she doesn't know what else to do, Um, but she doesn't want to see the circles back in place. So we have quite a variety. I mean, I guess those are kind of two ends of an extreme of responses to what's happened and what should happen going forward, which I think is kind of interesting. And you've got Dorian, who's coming at it from a completely different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I found really interesting about Dorian, if we can talk about oppression and epistemic advantage, is that... Dorian is coming from a completely different experience as a mage from Tevinter, right? Yep. And so he knows things about Tevinter that it doesn't seem that people in Ferelden necessarily know <laughs> about the way Tevinter society is structured and where problems may arise and that it's not so much from a threat of abomination, though that does happen from time to time, but more about this kind of issue of blood purity and power and all that kind of stuff. But Dorian really doesn't seem to have a lot of perspective about the elves no. intervention. <laughs> right? So Dorian has really good epistemic advantage on what it is to be a gay man interventor, what is involved in being an altus interventor, how mages are treated interventor. 
but he doesn't seem to recognize that slavery is a problem. Which you get to call him on a couple of times. You do. And I thought that it was a really good representation because, so there are arguments in standpoint theory in feminist epistemology saying if you experience oppression and gain the epistemic advantage through that oppression in one area, you may be more likely to recognize other areas of oppression and to be a good ally. But a lot of people point out that more likely is by no means guaranteed, right? Yeah. It's quite possible to be somebody who advocates quite strongly against one axis of oppression while completely failing to recognize another axis of oppression even exists, right? Yeah. And so I thought that Dorian's characterization was actually quite brilliant for that. <laughs> and it raises complex issues. Like, what well, I mean, one, I remember that conversation that you're having with Dorian at one point where it's about elves into Venter and his argument was essentially something like, look, they're servants. A lot of them are treated really well. <laughs> yeah. And you can see how that might be persuasive in the light, in light of how so many elves were being mistreated <laughs> in the alienage, in the yeah. alienages and our, their lives were miserable, but they were free for some definition of that. So, and, and the idea is that indentured servitude is different from slavery, right? That there was an idea that the, the elves were choosing this because it made their lives better. And I think I recall a conversation with an elf in Dragon Age 2 where where there's an elf who is actually quite committed to their master in some ways because of yeah. they they were being well treated. So they didn't feel like it was a bad experience per se because they themselves hadn't experienced the yeah. terrible things that Yeah. There are two things I like about this and it's that you can call Dorian on it and particularly if you have good rapport with Dorian, and if you may also happen to be an elf, he really does pause. He does. Right? He listens to you. He has an open mind about it. He practices this kind of epistemic virtue and is like, oh yeah, I never thought about that. So you can kind of call him out and push him on this a little bit. And it's, it's not necessarily that he does a complete 180, but he does pause and take what you say seriously and say he's going to reflect on this, which I thought was very cool as kind of modeling that. And yeah, the other thing that I think is interesting that you brought up is this idea of him saying, like, some of the elves are asking, they they want to be indentured, we might encounter elves in Dragon Age 2, who are very loyal to their masters. And that's this idea, which comes up in standpoint theory that just because you are in an oppressed social location, doesn't automatically give you epistemic advantage, right? that there's there's work that needs to be done to be able to even see the oppression. And we often hear like, it's hard to see the water you swim in when you're a fish swimming in it, right? Like it's yeah. hard to reflect on it. And so well, Miranda Fricker says, for example, that people need to get together in kind of groups that otherwise you might think it's your own idiosyncratic experience. Like, oh, so if you're an elephant to venture and your human master is not treating you well, Maybe it's because you're a bad servant, you might think. Right. Or if they're treating you well, but you're still kind of dissatisfied, you might think, well, maybe the problem is me. And so the idea is that if groups can get together and kind of share their experiences, that's when we might be able to actually have what's called a kind of consciousness raising and gain the epistemic advantage of being able to identify the bars of the cage, right? Rather than thinking the problem might be with me and why am I not fitting in super well? And I think with, with the conversation with Dorian, why should we trust Dorian has a really good sense about what elves are thinking? Totally. <laughs> no, this is more talking about when you're saying uh, in Dragon Age 2 that we do encounter elves who are totally yes. loyal. Yeah. No, there's no reason to think Dorian is an expert. Exactly. <laughs> with regards to elf experiences in Tevinter. <laughs> totally. This actually makes me think about Fenris. Mm-hmm. Because when you're talking with his sister, yeah, she says that Fenris was competing for the privilege of, you know. That he wanted it. That he wanted. Because of the advantages he thought it would bring his family. Yeah. And so 
again, we can come back to those double binds, right? Where it's the, you've got terrible choices no matter what. And then that's framed as something that is where you, you're, you're, the, the people who are oppressed are being framed as having agency yeah. just because they have a choice. So we often see this in society where structural barriers are reframed as individual choices. Yes. Right? So we say, for example, new mothers are choosing to stay home with their kids instead of it being a problem of like not adequate childcare or not good parental leave for example, or things like that. Or the existence of the wage gap, which makes it more rational for the women to stay home instead of men when it's heterosexual couples. And Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we often hear these things framed as personal choices instead of talking about the larger social norms and structural issues that influence our choices. But so I, I think we know that these kind of norms often influence the kind of individual decisions that people make. But we may still think of them as individually free decisions instead of really thinking about the way these norms and structural situations can really impact people such that they don't really have what you might call a free decision. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about A Modern Girl in Thetis and talk about what kind of things we can learn from the game and take from the game kind of out into, quote unquote, the real world. I think one of the cool things about the way that the game is set up such that it does have these forms of oppression running throughout the game in various ways is that if you're doing more than one playthrough, and you're changing who it is that you are, you get to see the different perspectives of the world through the lens of your character. Yeah. Yes. So you get to see how much easier the Winter Palace is to navigate <laughs> as a human. And the first time I navigated the Winter Palace, I was a dwarf. So people made a comment like I was a curiosity, but by and large, I was just a curiosity. When I played through as a human, everything went fine and I did great and I nailed the Winter Palace. Yeah. And then when I played through as an elf, that was the first time I'd ever heard anybody refer to elves as rabbit. I didn't even know that that was a thing. That I, <laughs> I did not realize how speciest, racist the people in Orlais were towards elves until I played the Winter Palace as an elf. And then I was like, oh my God, it's everywhere and I had not seen it as a dwarf or as a human and I think so I've I often have played as the the non-human characters and then when I did play as the human character it really was a wow this suddenly made it so much easier and if you you know there are certain exploits you can do with the game particularly if you're a human mage for example you can use an exploit where if you talk to one of the people fast enough it prevents you from any point hits like you don't actually get deducted any points at the beginning <laughs> but you really have to a know about it in advance and boy you have to get to that conversation so quickly that there's something about it that if you start the conversation with one of the ladies who's looking for her ring right that will stop you from taking a hit as a mage but you have to do it right away you have to do it right away you have to know it's there and it's an exploit <laughs> Right. I mean, so this is an epistemic advantage that you don't have to know. It's a, it's a, exactly. <laughs> but I and I think the the thing is there is nothing you can do as a character to stop people yeah from having their prejudices. Like there's the, I, the the Winter Palace part is always interesting because it's it really does highlight that in numerical form. <laughs> Yes. Right. Where you just start off as a, you start off at a disadvantage. And it's actually an example I use with my students sometime when I'm talking about affirmative action. Yeah. Where one of the reasons why we may want to justify certain forms of affirmative action, which are, you know, sometimes called uh, handicapping, where you basically give an advantage to targeted groups 
because they start as a at a disadvantage. And I think this is sort of the virtual visual example of that, where yeah. if your goal is to get 100% and get the bell of the ball, you're going to have a so much harder chance out of the starting gate if you happen to be an elven mage. Yes. <laughs> Dwarf, elf, or canary are all starting at a disadvantage yes. of varying levels. Yeah. And so I think that's really interesting for talking about the, the structural and social norms of oppression, that this just operates in the background and it changes the way you play the game. If you're playing as an elven mage, you have to play more strategically and you have to know more of these workarounds and think about what you're going to do to try and kind of combat this disadvantage. And if you're playing as a human, it's really not as hard. <laughs> you don't have to know any of this stuff. And there now there are ways to get advantages. Right, you can get advantages. So for example, if you've gotten certain inquisitor perks, yeah, then you can make use of those perks in conversations to earn more points. Yeah. Right. So if you've been strategic and been choosing those perks in ways that allow you to have more conversation options and so on, you you can sort of offset those, you know, the initial disadvantages. However, I think this is sort of an exemplar of when you're a member of an oppressed group, yeah. you have to work that much harder <laughs> because in order to get Inquisition perks, you need to have done so much more in the game to earn so many more points in order to be, yeah. your influence has to be so much higher. And so you just have to do so much more. And it, it buys into that, that notion that people who are marginalized note all the time in order to do or get the same respect within doing a job or, you know, just generally people who are marginalized have to work so much harder to yeah. get the same amount of respect that they have to be perfect in their jobs to get the same respect as someone who is just mediocre, who experienced privilege. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this is the other thing that I think that the game really allows us to kind of bring with us and to think about, as we like turn off the computer or the console and go back to our daily lives is that, as you said, when we play the game from multiple different standpoints, multiple different social locations, you do see the world of Thetis differently and you have experiences that are different. And this really allows us to see the kind of epistemic advantages that can be gained from some social locations and just the lack of advantage from others. Like I didn't even know rabbit was a thing that people said when I played through as a dwarf or as a human, I was completely unaware of that this microaggression even existed. Mm -hmm. Whereas obviously when I played it as an elf, I gained that knowledge. But the other thing is if we think about the games themselves and we think about Medina's call to try and shift to, well, he calls it epistemologies of resistance to kind of fight back against closed-minded, arrogant, dominant uh, narratives about the way the world is, which are often inaccurate and don't serve marginalized people particularly well. I think that the games, even though they're fantasy and even though the oppressions and marginalizations that exist in the game don't really exist in reality, right? We don't have oppressed mages. I think that it still serves as really good narratives to try and kind of push back to encourage us to be more open-minded because you know if you play the game another time from another social location you're going to learn more about this world and about the kind of norms and structural inequalities that exist in this world and if you always play from the same perspective you don't necessarily gain that knowledge so i think that the game the games themselves actually function as part of this epistemology of resistance to encourage people to practice virtuous knowing, to practice being open-minded and to not be arrogant about the way the world of Thetis works because in the next playthrough, you might learn something else. <laughs> and so I would hope that we can take that into our own lives where we recognize we only really get to play from one social location. <laughs> And that we need to kind of listen to people in other social locations with an open mind. I think that's a really good lesson. And to add to that, I think in the way that the game writers have presented the stories, it is, I think, really clear to see parallels between the sorts of oppressions experienced in the game and the sorts of experiences that are present in 
the real world. Definitely. So thinking about the parallels between mages and gender. Yeah. Thinking about the parallels between the elves and racism. Yeah. Yeah. I think that definitely is another related lesson to the idea of just bringing open-mindedness and virtuous epistemology kind of with us. brings us to the end of episode three we've done three of these kira we're so good Woo! you can check us out at andraste's gadfly on twitter or email us at andraste's gadfly at gmail.com and we'll chat later bye bye